Christianity is very diverse, but all denominations share a common source that, by its nature, has created problems for which there is no biblical antidote. Tim Glover provides an alternative. Join him each Wednesday at 10 a.m. to share his studies with you. Today, as far as our study goes, I'd like to introduce some thoughts regarding some commonly misinterpreted passages of Scripture. You know, the Bible is a book about which people talk a lot. And even though they may not be well versed in the Bible, they seem to have some strong opinions about it. And that's because so many times we've heard some preacher say something in passing, or we've heard part of a sermon that we haven't been paying attention to a lot. And maybe he says the Bible says, and he uh, it's more of an interpretation of what he thinks the Bible says rather than quoting it. Someone begins to tell us what the Bible says, and the Bible teaches this, and and yet it's not in the Bible at all because they've heard someone else say it was, or they maybe say they've seen a movie somewhere and they envision Jesus doing something that he didn't do. That nowhere in the Bible does it state that. That's a very common thing. But as we've been talking about having a healthy, you know, respect for the Word and speaking only as the oracles of God. I believe this would be a good follow-up to illustrate what happens oftentimes when when people are lo- using the Bible more as a proof text that it says what they want it to say, and they typically uh, quote and, and read scriptures that support what they believe rather than, and probably do not <laughs> spend as much time quoting and reading scriptures that may not support what they believe. And I don't know that people are doing this intentionally. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not uh, judging or maligning people's motives, but it just seems that that is a a common uh, reaction. There are many interpretations of Scripture that are often violated. Uh, the meaning and the terms and the context in which they appear are just somewhat, you know, disregarded. And they'll pick out a sentence or two that, you know, taken out of the particular context in which it was written, really supports what they say or what they believe. But it doesn't have anything to do with what the author was getting at when he wrote those things. So a proper handling of the Word of God demands that we're thoroughly acquainted with the passage and the context in which the passage is given. A lot of people read a passage and give little or no consideration to the context or to the context of of the Bible itself that deals with that topic. In other words, there's an immediate context and then there is a broader context where we might talk about how the Bible treats this word in other places. You know, individual passages are just parts of the, of the book as a whole. And so the parts and the whole must be kept in proper relation and perspective. A passage then, as we take a look at its scripture, we have to consider it carefully in relation to the, the language and the line of the argument being given or the thought of which uh, that's being taken up. That's an integral part. And truth has the quality of being consistent. God's not going to be a a God of confusion, and he's not going to be a God that contradicts himself. There will be complete harmony. And I know there are a lot of people who are trying to find discrepancies with it and and cause doubt in the minds of people. But a lot of that is, again, misunderstanding the context in which they're given. Language and context are so crucial to uh, its meaning. There are some passages that are frequently misinterpreted, and for that reason, the misinterpretation gains a widespread acceptance, and it just goes from mouth to mouth, 
mouth to ear, mouth to ear, and just on down the line. And the consequences of that can be disastrous. It, it doesn't always do that, but it affects other ideas and thoughts, perhaps on other topics and other areas of Scripture. So from one era, several may ultimately occur from that. And so it's most important that we are very careful to look at the Bible carefully, to look at the context and study those words, because words are vehicles of thought. And if those words were penned by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he put those there, then they're there for a reason. And we need not replace it. We need not find some substitute for them. We need to speak as the scriptures teach, as the oracles of God. I think it is necessary to this effort that we're sincere in that in that purpose. I understand that, you know, we've all done this. We've all been guilty of it at some time in our life and perhaps even doing it now. But at least that we have a prayerful desire to seek to know God's will, to know God and to know his will. That is so important. It should be observed also that some of us, you know, may disagree with the things that I have to say about any given passage this today. All that I ask of you that who are engaged and think about the things that are said is that you carefully consider them. That's all I'm asking. And that consideration be given to the basis of the views defended here and to accept the affirmation that they are presented honestly and prayerfully in hopes that we might promote an adherence, a, a desire to to do the will of God as he expresses it. That's my prayer. That's my endeavor. I trust that you will understand that and know that up, up front. The first passage that really is a good opener from just what we've just looked said so far is the statement found in Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 is an interesting chapter because it deals with matters of conscience, matters of personal scruples. Uh, he's not talking about so much what has been revealed, but rather one's understanding of what has been revealed, one's belief on what must be practiced, so that whatever is done must be done with great conviction. There are several terms and state phrases found throughout the chapter that's, that emphasizes the, the value of being fully assured in, in one's own mind, convicted, that, that somebody may have a different view that they have toward God, and, and that's their conviction on the matter. Well, this is a similar statement here in Romans 14 when he says, whatever is not of faith is sin. Well, sometimes that passage is used to teach that whatever one does is wrong if it's not in the Word of God, since faith comes by hearing, right? Romans 10, 17. And so reference to the context enables us to see the point at issue here. We have to live consistently with one's convictions. That's the issue. Faith in the passage refers to the conviction that one has. Um, if it wasn't that, then and it was just a matter of what's re revealed, then all it would take to solve the problem is for someone to just say, hey, this, thus saith the Lord, this is what the Bible says, correct the person on their misunderstanding of it, and that would sell, settle it. But you see, there's more to it than that. If I've come to believe something and have all of my life and practiced it, then it, it's sort of etched as a, a thing that is, is right, and even though I'm conflicted, I hear one thing, and uh, I'm not comfortable with doing it because it just it just goes against the grain, it goes against everything that I've been taught. And so a person shouldn't dismiss that. That's the problem. A person shouldn't ignore that. He should be true to his conscience, true to his conviction, 
until he's fully convinced that what he's doing is is wrong and change it. So it's it takes a whole a great deal more than just simply correcting somebody's view. Many times it's a matter of following one's conscience. Now I understand that may take a little time, but it starts with the correction. It starts with a proper understanding. It starts with the proper handling of the word and teaching God's word. But one must in his own mind be sure that what what he does and what he believes is right. There must be no doubt, nothing doubting. And if one does something and really doubts that he should do it, then what results is sin. And that's the point that's being made in Romans 14, 23. You can't be right before God if he, if he doesn't live consistently with his conviction of what is right. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that what is convicted is right is in fact right. <laughs> but at least... He thinks it is, and to go against that or to be pressured into doing something that he's not comfortable with that goes against his grain, he should stay away from that. Don't let anyone influence them away from that. And those who would attempt to do that are wrong as well. We should never put a stumbling block in a brother's way. So the weak brother here in Romans 14 has nothing to do with someone just, you know, bombarded by sin of all sorts or some terrible, you know, drug addiction or some terrible sin that he's trying to break. That's not the weak brother. The weak brother is someone who is weak in conscience. He's he's doing something without conviction, doubting, but he's going along perhaps with somebody else or a group of others, but he's not, he, all along, he, it bothers him that he's doing it because he doesn't feel good about it. He thinks that his conscience is bothered by the fact that he's going along with something and uh that's the sin and and the the whole context revolves around that and so it is not necessarily the case that one is right with god when one abides by his conscience uh paul was a good example of that you remember he talks about having lived before god in all good conscience of this day he was one void of offense uh he believed that he was doing god a service in one place he says and you can find references to this. One is in Acts 23, 1. And again in chapter 24, verse 16. But prior to his conversion to Christ, he was the chief of sinners. His conscience was good. He did what he thought was right. He believed it was right. But the standard by which his conscience measured his conduct was wrong. Now, it's true we have to walk by faith. Yeah, It's true that, uh, that this faith comes by hearing the word of God. But faith in this instance doesn't have the same meaning as faith does in, in other places. So the point at issue in the discussion in Romans 14 and its context forces one to the conclusion that faith in this passage refers to one's personal conviction concerning choices, choices of belief or behavior. What one believes in this context does not refer to what the Word of God re reveals, but rather that, that whatever he does, he acts consistently with his conviction, nothing doubting. Another uh, view that is often misunderstood is when someone talks about being saved by faith and they add the word only to it. Now, I understand that the word faith is oftentimes used in Scripture in a very comprehensive way so that it includes the whole gambit, that is, when we put our trust and confidence in Christ, we accept him, we believe him, we, we make him ruler and Lord of our life. That's, 
That's faith. And when that happens, you're submitting your entire will over to him so that whatever he says, as the prophet says, speak, Lord, and your servant heareth, command, and I will obey. And so obedience is involved. That's why I think the Roman letter starts and ends with the phrase, the obedience of faith. And another example of it, by the way, is in Galatians 3.26, when Paul says, for you're all the sons of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And that's absolutely right. And those who believe in faith only would say amen to that. But listen to the very next verse. Now, he says, you're all sons of God by faith. And then he says, for, he's going to explain this, for as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You want to put on Christ? You want to be in Christ? Then he says they're baptized into Christ. What is that? Well, that's an act of faith. You see, but that when you say faith only, that expression, faith only, I would be very hesitant to use that expression, that phrase, because the only time it is used together, James says in chapter 2, it is not by faith only. The only time faith only is used, the Bible says it's not. We're not saved by faith only. Of course, he's illustrating the same point that we've been, we just made, and that is that True faith always demonstrates itself. It shows itself. In fact, James almost he challenges his readers as if to say, I, I dare you, show me your faith without your works. Just try it. And then he adds in a, redundant, re, re, you know, his emphasis is, and I by my works will show you my faith. You see, you, you can't show faith without works. They go together. They're a tandem. You can't separate them. And so when we talk about salvation by faith, let's keep it there. Well, salvation by faith is taught in the scriptures. But don't add the word only. To interpret these passages as if they asserted faith only would be parallel to saying that whatever is said to save us, saves us only. Well, let's, let's just be consistent and say Romans 5.10 says that the death of Christ saves us. Now, should I add only to that? Only the death of Christ. But yet, we're also told in the very same verse that we're saved by his life. All right, so we're saved by his life only. Well, who would want to do that to Scripture? Or we're saved by his blood only. Romans, the, very, uh, the verse before that in Romans 5, verse 9, look at that. 1 Peter 1, 19. Well, what about baptism doth now also? Now, save us, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 21. You want to add only to that? Well, not very many people would do that, but it is associated with salvation. But no one's going to add only to that, will they? Well, what about repentance? In Acts eleven eighteen, repentance is, is certainly a, a, associated with salvation. In, in chapter uh, 17, uh, in verse 30, the times of ignorance, God once winked at, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent only. Well, we don't. We're not going to add the word only to that, will we? And yet, <clears throat> repentance is certainly associated with our salvation. In Acts 2, 38, Peter said to those Jews who cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Remember? He said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. So, certainly, we, we, we could not omit repentance as an, something necessary for one to do. And yet, nowhere do we find the word or the phrase repent only. See, all of these things, 
whatever the Bible says that's required or that is involved in a man's salvation from sin is part of that process. But nobody would want to add only to it. But we do faith. Why is that? I mean, there are scriptures that just talk about it in regard to faith. Uh, confession is made unto salvation. Confession is involved in our salvation. His blood was shed in order to the remission of sins. Uh, Matthew 26 and 28 says, it is shed for the remission of sins. For that reason, one must say that we're saved by his blood. But to add the word only after blood would only do violence to the text. It would contradict other statements of the word of God. Do you see that? So other scriptures teach that faith only is uh, certainly not taught. Another example that can happen in our misinterpretation of scripture is found in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 22, uh, Paul says, but shun the, the appearance of evil. And a common interpretation of that passage is that one should not not only not be around evil whenever it happens, but that but that you shouldn't even do anything that might look at, by somebody else as being wrong. In other words, if, if they see you and another woman in the same car without your wife, well, they're going to talk. They're going to think bad about it. Or if you come to the door of a house and ladies up there, and you drive by their house and not knowing that the husband is in there and the family's in there, they might think, well, that that's that looks bad, and you sh you shouldn't do that. Or if, you, if your car breaks down and it's near the beer joint, you go in to try to get a, uh, to use the phone to get some help. Why, you shouldn't do that because that's not avoiding every appearance of evil. That's how the passage has been applied and has been used by many over the years. In fact, I'll have to acknowledge the fact that I, I used to use it that way because that's how I was taught it. The word appearance is translated from a, a word that in a literal sense means that which strikes the eye, that which is exposed to one's sight. But of course, we're talking about, uh, it's used in a metaphorical sense. Evil may express itself in different ways. And in, in whatever way it expresses itself, we should stay away from it. That's the point. There should be no participation with evil or in evil whatsoever, however it may be expressed. W.E. Vine, in his expository dictionary of the New Testament words, he observed that this metaphorical sense of the term was common in the papyri immediately before Christ and in the New Testament era. He goes on to say is that evil expresses itself in so many different ways. So sometimes the, the appearance of evil could be translated the form of evil or kinds of evil. We should avoid participating in every sort or kind of evil. This is the sense that the word has in this context. And so it it's when you think about it that way, there's a lot of different scriptures that where the words are used sort of as a metaphor, as giving us a, a, a visual picture by perhaps illustrating it. First Peter chapter two, verse one, beginning, for example, Peter talks about desiring the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. He talks about spiritual person and applied to milk. That's a metaphor for, for God's word, and it means that it is reasonable, that it is rational, and when understood and obeyed, this milk can nourish the soul. And although the Word of God can be understood, there's a lot of fickleness, there's a lot of ignorance that may cause one to rest it to their own destruction, Second Peter 3, verse 15 and 16. 
So be careful. Diligent study and application of the word can prevent ignorance. <laughs> and uh, a resolute will and determination to obey God's word is the antidote for being fickle and treating the word of God with carelessness. I do not suggest that people are doing this intentionally necessarily. It's just what we've been taught. And so we just pass on what we have been taught with regard to these passages and find ourselves saying things that the Bible doesn't say. Um, other example, in 2 Corinthians eleven three, Paul talks about the simplicity that is in Christ. All right. Well, simplicity, we often use that to talk about the fact that the gospel is so simple. In fact, uh, one preacher friend uh, years and years ago held meetings all over the country, said, that, yeah, the Bible is so simple that a, even a fool can't misunderstand it. And he would quote the Old Testament passage that talks about uh, a stranger, though uh, a wayfaring man, though a fool, but will not err therein. So, And he's making the point, it sounds like it could apply to that, in making the point that the gospel is so simple that a fool can't misunderstand it. But that's another misapplication of that prophecy. <laughs> now, it's an Old Testament text, granted, and, and I'll not look at that, but that's, that's one example you could pull out to illustrate how people have used Scripture to prove what they want to prove, but if you read the text, it doesn't have anything to do with that. The prophet was talking about the fact that the highway of the Lord, uh, he goes on to say, who will be on the highway? And he says that, you know, the righteous, the that they will walk therein, he talks about it. The point is he's trying to identify who is on the highway of the Lord, and the fool won't be on in there. I'm not talking about the gospel and how simple the, the gospel is. And nor is he doing that in Second Corinthians eleven three, when he talks about the simplicity that is in Christ. The thrust of that in, interpretation is that the Bible is so simple in its message that nobody can misunderstand it. The word comes from a word that denotes sincerity. Uh, the word is from a word that can be translated single or simple, but it should be contrasted to another word in the Greek that means double or duplicity. It should be contrasted with that word. The sense of it is that one should be single-hearted in sincere devotion to Christ without any duplicity. In other words, not be torn and, and other things competing and vying for their affection and their setting and the setting of their priorities. It is simplicity as contrasted to duplicity that is under view in this scripture. Not whether the word of God is easy or hard to understand, as some are saying. You know, there are several passages where the word occurs that might help us understand its meaning, and the King James picks up a different translation, but it's the same Greek word. Let me note a few of them with you. Ephesians chapter 6, for example. In verse 5, he talks about the fact that servants, they're, they're instructed to be obedient to their masters with singleness of heart. Singleness in this passage is from the same word. And the idea is that the servant should obey sincerely, without distraction and without seeking to be a man pleaser. In other words, please others. The focus, the single mind is to serve God, to please God. That's the focus. And of course, if that's the focus in serving God, his relationship to his master is such that when he serves his master, in his mind, he's serving God. Of course, that makes it a whole lot easier. And uh, not only does it make it easier, but he will be more successful. 
The same instruction is given over in Colossians 3 uh, and in verse 22. So the Bible can be understood. No one's questioning that. Uh, people do twist the scriptures, though. But 2 Corinthians 11.3 is not uh, saying that you know one should <laughs> study it carefully, as we've been stating all along. But to say that this ta text is teaching the Bible is easy, is it really falls in the face of a lot of conflict. For example, Paul, uh, Peter rather, would talk about Paul's letters. And he said in 2 Peter 3, I think it's about verse 15 beginning, that Paul wrote some things hard to be understood, which ignorant and unsteadfast people pervert as they do other scriptures. Well, in the passage under view here, Paul was fearful that some of the Corinthians would be seduced, corrupted by the cleverness of the devil from, from sincere, single-hearted devotion to Christ. And so to interpret simplicity to mean ease and understanding the word of Christ is to do violence both to the language itself and to the context in which it occurs. It doesn't mean that. One more, and our time will be up for this morning. In 2 Peter 2.15, study to show yourself approved unto God. This is the old English way of saying to give diligence to something, and that's exactly what the Greek word means. It's to give, to endeavor, to give diligence. One should make every effort to take pains and exert oneself to handle the truth right, cut it right or straight, literally. And that's the meaning of the word. In fact, you find other examples of it in Scripture as well. We may come back and pick this thought up for next week as well. I thank you so much for listening to these things. I trust you've had uh, um, some eye-opening moments and pray that you will continue to study. May God give you a good day and a pleasant week ahead.